You are listening to a podcast about technology and innovation in the energy and oil and gas markets at the ONS Conference 2018. This is Sylvia Serres. Welcome to a podcast about uh, innovation and technology in the world of energy. We are at the ONS Conference in Stavanger. And I'm Sylvia Serres, and my guest now is um, Ramez Nam, a co-chair for Energy and Environment at Singularity University. Ramez, welcome. Hi, Sylvia. Nice to be here. Very nice to see you here, and very strange to see you in a suit and a tie. <laughs> <laughs> you can tell. I can tell. Um, so, uh, Ramez, you were uh, the um, exotic and entry in the opening part mm -hmm. of the conference. Uh, very refreshing, very impatient about what's happening in the world of energy and actually a bit different from the other presenters from the old world of energy. Mm. So will you tell us, you know, why are you doing Energy for Singularity and what, what, what's interesting about it for you? Yeah, well, I really have two different backgrounds that led me to this. One is that I've worked in technology my whole life. I have a degree in computer science. I worked at Microsoft for a long time. And two is that I got interested in energy first, looking at it from an environmental standpoint. And how do we maintain the uplift of billions of people's lives by providing them energy, but do it in a clean way? And so I, I found my way to some data about solar and batteries and found that they were both dropping enormously in price. So I was here this morning, as you say, as the sort of exotic person. I was not a CEO of an oil company. I told definitely <laughs> the oddball. Uh, at telling them how technology like solar power, wind power, batteries, and especially these self-driving electric vehicles threaten to massively disrupt the oil and gas industry have already disrupted the coal industry uh, and want to do the same to oil and gas around the world. So my impression from the industry, from the outside, as I'm the outsider as well, is that they are really good at incremental innovations. You know, they will do things that will cut, cut costs, uh, improve the cleanliness of some sort of um, products they have, but they don't really want to admit that there is something bigger and disruptive coming on. They don't really believe that the world is ready for solar yet. Yeah. I mean, we've seen waves in the industry. There was a while when BP meant beyond petroleum, and they tried to get into solar, but it was a bit early. Uh, you saw Shell do some waves like that. Today on stage, we had the CEOs of probably the two most progressive and forward-looking large oil companies, Equinor and Total. And they have you know, more aggressive goals than almost anyone else. Uh, Total, Patrick Puyoni, he said they want to get 20% of their revenue from clean electricity by 2025. That's an enormously ambitious goal, and yet that's also very timid compared to the pace of change that may come to the industry. So they're caught somewhere in between. So you said 20% of their total energy from renewables? Yeah, don't quote me, but I think what... Uh, no, it Patrick, doesn't matter. I'm just trying to get the size. Because you were yeah. saying that you could see a future where 40% comes yeah, yeah, yeah. 
relatively soon. Patrick was saying that for Total, the company he's CEO of, he wants to get 20% of their revenue coming from clean energy by 2025, which is not the world's mix, but is a, that's a, it's a company that has 250 billion US in revenue. That's $50 billion in revenue from clean energy, which is actually very, very large. And yet the scale at which the industry might change might be even faster than that. So tell us a little bit about that. You had some really interesting examples about the changes in solar and battery and what yeah. happens in solar, for example. Well, so people will buy the cheapest energy available if they can. And uh, decades ago, solar just cost many, many times more than coal or gas. But the cost of a solar panel for the same amount of power has dropped over my lifetime by about a factor of 300. Since 1977 to now, 250 times price reduction. So now in sunny parts of the world, with no subsidies whatsoever, you have solar coming in at cheaper than coal or natural gas. We see that in the U.S., in Tucson, Arizona, in Colorado, and parts of Texas and California. We see it all across Latin America, in Mexico, Brazil, Chile, uh, we see it all across the Middle East in uh, Abu Dhabi and Saudi Arabia. Uh, we even see it maybe spreading into Europe. There was a bid in a solar auction in Germany about two months ago at four euro cents per kilowatt hour. And coal or gas is at least six cents per kilowatt hour. So you're saying that this producer of energy is promising to produce cheaper energy based on solar than the competition can do based on coal. Yes, that's right. And that is disruption. That's what it takes to disrupt coal is you just have to come in at a lower cost. So explain to me two things, by the way. First is, will that saving go to the customers or who gets to enjoy <laughs> the saving? Yeah. And, and the second is, why, why is that becoming so cheap? What, what happens with, with solar technology? Yeah. Who gets the saving is a good question. I think ultimately it will lower the cost. So in Chile, Chile near the equator is one of the sunniest places on Earth. What we've seen is that the high penetration of solar over just the last few years has brought down retail electricity rates by about half in that country. So it's been a very, very major savings for consumers. As for why it's coming down, we see in many technologies, like the the technology in your phone or the microchip in your laptop, that these industries every year bring down the cost by 40%, that every 18 months they double how much computing or how much memory you get per dollar. That's something like that at a much slower pace is happening in solar and wind and batteries. So as we've scaled the industry and companies have gotten to invest more money in R&D, we've seen this learning rate where every doubling of the scale of solar brings down the cost 25 or 30%. Is this improvement in solar driven by investments of Chinese government and subsidies also? Or, I mean, is, is the basic component technology becoming very much cheaper? The basic component technology is becoming very much cheaper. So even uh, six, seven years ago, uh, the basic component, a watt of solar panel, cost $2. Now it costs about $0.30. Cents. And that's maybe a little bit of that 
is a Chinese government intervention, but mostly not. You can buy a similar panel from Japan or Thailand for 35 cents. So just everywhere around the world, it's innovation mostly in the manufacturing process. It's uh, using less silicon. It's using less heat. It's shaving the panels thinner. It's reducing the labor per panel made. It's automating the factories more. That's what's really bringing down the price. So there is a, there is a similar improvement in the world of batteries? Yes. Yeah. So in batteries, capacity is going up slowly, but it is going up. But cost is coming down very rapidly. So they're not getting that much bigger, but they are getting much cheaper, is what yeah. you're saying? It's the batteries over the last 20 years have maybe doubled how much energy they can store. But in just the last seven years, from 2010 to 2017, they dropped in price by a factor of five, 80% price reduction. And that is unexpected by most people. And it really opens up whole new frontiers, especially for electric vehicles. Because now most cars can have a Tesla-level battery, or how, how, how should we think about that? Yeah, I mean, you can look at it in terms of the price drop of Teslas. You know, the mm. first Tesla Roadster 10 years ago was a $250,000 sports car. And then we got the Tesla Model S, which was an eighty or $90,000 luxury car. And now we have the Tesla Model 3 that is a $35,000, still somewhat expensive, but that's getting to be family car. And a lot of that is that the price of batteries in those vehicles has dropped by 80% in those 10 years. By the way, do you know about the Norwegian experiences in rolling out uh, electric vehicles? I know that Norway is number one in the world yeah. in terms of uh, fraction of vehicles that yeah. are electric. There is taxation that's extremely um, attractive for electric vehicles. So yeah. basically, uh, compared to the uh, very large tax you pay on other cars, you pay almost nothing on, on electric. And yeah. uh, so they're very affordable, almost to the point where I find it um, silly to see how many <laughs> Teslas drive around in my neighborhood. Well, But, I think those subsidies have an important role to play. And, and people, I think, often miss this. The subsidies, whether the German subsidies for solar or the Norwegian subsidies for electric cars, aren't meant to be there forever. And that's, they don't have to be. All they have to do is they have to be there early enough and for long enough to take a very, very, very young, very tiny industry. The electric car industry is still one half of 1% of the size of the internal combustion engine car industry. And just through those subsidies, scale the industry up big enough that the prices come down and the companies are able to reinvest their own money in R&D. And so now in solar, we see solar now can survive without subsidies in sunny places. Wind can survive without subsidies in windy places. And we're pretty close to the point where electric vehicles will survive without subsidies almost everywhere as well. So while we're talking about this, there is also a change in markets for energy. There is this um, not only micro-production on your solar panel or your windmill in your garden, but there is, or sorry, wind um, production, mm -hmm. but, uh, but there is, um, you're trading energy with your neighbors and there is, uh, there is, there are completely new kinds of markets and, and new derivative products and all of our gadgets yeah, are true. behaving differently. So, so it's a whole ecosystem somehow. Um, uh, is, is it pulling away from the traditional energy sources? 
I think this is one area where there's a lot of experimentation going on right now. And most of that work with markets is about sending signals to the homeowner or the appliances, right? If um, today, uh, with electricity, at the peak hours in the early afternoon, demand is much higher than it is at midnight, uh, which means that it's very expensive to produce at those hours. You have special power plants that just sit idle, not operating until they kick in for a few hours, even just a week. So all things being equal, you'd rather even out the load. You'd rather tell someone that's going to run their dishwasher at 4 p.m. to wait until 9 p.m. And so a price signal is one way to do that. So I think people are really just experimenting with different ways to send those signals. Listen, you had also um, a really nice story using the autonomous and the electric, possibly, vehicles. Yes. And what what's interesting for me there is this... Um, you know, um, not only the adoption and the development of technology, but the inability of everyone to forecast when they're going to come. Yeah. Because even Apple, who tried dabbling in, in autonomous cars, was saying, yeah, well, they'll come, but it's a long time away. And then they said, well, they're coming sooner than we thought, but still not for five or 10 years. And then the next year, some, somebody like Tesla was there. Why are we so bad? at forecasting this. You had some really interesting yeah. graphs. I think we tend to have status quo bias, which is that we expect the future to look like the present. It's just baked into the evolutionary hardware of our brain. We evolved at a time when technology did not change. When the technology you had was the same as what your parents had, the same as what their parents had, the same as what their parents had. And now technology changes every two or three years. And so... When we make forecasts, our bias is to predict that the future will look a lot like the present. And that's why on solar, for instance, the International Energy Agency and everyone else, the U.S. Department of Energy, BP, Exxon, they have all had to lift their solar forecasts every single year of their existence because they've been wrong, because they haven't seen how fast the price would decline, so they haven't seen how far it would grow. And the same thing with electric cars. In the last three years, the International Energy Agency, the IEA, has lifted their forecast for electric cars from something like 20 million electric cars in 2030 to 125 million electric cars in 2030. Um, and it's not just them. They actually have some of the most aggressive forecasts. Every other forecaster, BP, Exxon, OPEC, Bloomberg, they've all done something similar. Hmm. So... Then what's the effect on society? You're from yeah. Singularity University, and I think that you guys are overly idealistic. <laughs> Saving the world one billion at a time. Um, the, one of the CEOs had a lovely quote from uh, Bruce Springsteen, unless everybody wins, nobody wins. Yeah. And we humans, you know, we, we have several evolutionary bugs that make us so wonderful. One is being yeah. creative and yeah. curious, um, being social, but also being competitive. Yeah. Do you believe it'll be, you know, unlimited energy and health and all of that for everyone? Or how, how, will, how will this distribute? Well, look, I think today it is the best time to be alive on planet Earth, period, on average. If you're the median person, if you wanted to be born as a random person on planet Earth, today you would have the lowest odds ever of being born into poverty, the lowest odds ever of being born into hunger the lowest odds ever of dying of an infectious disease over the course of your life. 
the best odds of getting literacy, the best odds of getting a long education, the best odds of living in a free society we're pretty close to ever. So the world is getting better. And technology is not the only reason, but it's an important component of that. What are the other components? Um, I think there's a couple other components. I think, honestly, I'm not sure how the populace would be in Norway. The spread of markets has actually been a big factor in that. When we look at what brought down the poverty rate in China so rapidly after 1978, when Deng Xiaoping started to open the country, it was markets. Because you're right, we are competitive, we're self-interested. So if you tell someone, um, instead of everything being centrally controlled, that if they produce a little bit more food, they get a little bit more income for their family, suddenly their production goes up, and that produces a positive gain for society as a whole. And similar things happen in India and Latin America and so on. So before we leave technology, I would like to ask you, what 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 are you most excited about? So you you know you're the co-dean yeah. of energy. What's what's your favorite? You know, I'm tempted to say autonomous vehicles. I think when we get to these autonomous vehicles, there's a million, 1.25 million deaths a year from motor vehicles. That's twice the death toll of all warfare and all murders combined. And autonomous vehicles will be overwhelmingly electric because electric is cheaper per mile. But I actually think there's something more fundamental for most people, and that is uh, mobile devices. I think we are on the verge of every adult on planet Earth having a broadband-connected Android, probably Android, a smartphone or something close to something similar to that. And that device is your education device, it's your anti-corruption device, it's your communication device, it's your encyclopedia, it's your language translator now. You can use Skype and have real-time speech translation. You know, today we have three billion people have used the internet ever out of seven and a half billion. And I think we're headed for a world where everyone has that degree of connectivity and that opens up people to markets. It allows them to get educated. It gives them more freedom. So I think that is the biggest fundamental human enabler for the next decade still. Very, um, I do get lifted, um, uh, re-inspired. So that's fun. Listen, uh, so let's go and do this. And how do we get the big, I was going to say dinosaurs, but I won't say dinosaurs, the big companies to do this? Yeah. It's easier to do this for a founder in or startup in, in, in a place like Silicon Valley or other places than for a big company. And I think sometimes we are being a bit unfair on them as well, because I think they have at the same time to, you know, play extremely responsibly with jobs that they are uh, administrating and energy supply and energy security and all kinds of other things and climate and, you know, responsible for everything. And yet we want them to take risks. Yeah. Which are disruptive. Yeah. H how do we help them? Well, I think there's the attitude uh, in large corporations and these multi-billion dollar corporations that if you're going to start a new initiative, it's going to be a hundred million dollar initiative or why bother? But that's the opposite of Silicon Valley. In Silicon Valley, the the phrase is fail fast. You start a startup and you get 
$50,000 from friends and family that you scrounge together and you're in a garage and you're two people and you try to make it work. And then if you get to a certain milestone, then you go back and you raise a seed round of a few hundred thousand dollars. And then if you get to a certain milestone there and do what you said you're going to do, then you raise a few million dollars. So we experiment. You're more okay with failure if the failures are small. And the only way to be truly creative is to risk failure. That's how you, ex you explore the space of possibilities. But if every experiment is $100 million, you're going to get burned the first time one fails, and you're going to say, well, I'm never going to do that again. So you have to find a way to create a culture of autonomy, a culture of experimentation, a culture of empowerment, where small teams or even individuals can say, I'm going to go try something. I'm going to spend small amount of resources on it. I'm going to try it fast. I'm going to see what works and doesn't work. And I'm going to report back and see if we can take this to the next level. You think that uh, investors in general, other places in Silicon Valley, accept that? Because my experience is that very often they are the ones who are skeptical and yeah. risk averse. And then the boards, of course, will be risk averse. And then the management will be even more risk averse. I think there is a, a conflict with quarterly earnings reports and so on and this sort of thing. But the beauty of those small-scale experiments, as I said, is they never have to rise to the level of even disclosing them, to be totally honest. They can be extremely small-scale such that they don't impact the bottom line or the P&L. Again, if you're going to say we're going to put $100 million behind this initiative, you've got to report it. Right, And then investors can say, well, why the heck are you doing this? If it was a couple people that you assigned that spent a couple hundred thousand dollars, that's not even a line item. That's hidden in some, not hidden, but that's buried deep, uh, several layers down below the smallest line item you have in your quarterly earnings. It's just in your R&D spend. So that's how you do it, is start these things small so that you have permission One to or many? Fast. Many. In Skunk Works or, or everywhere? Um, as close to everywhere as you can. Silicon Valley is different because, you know, some people are engineers. Anyone can try things. Digital is much easier to try things. But if you look at Amazon, at Amazon, the rule is the default yes. And the rule is uh, build platforms to make experimentation easy. So if you have a 23-year-old engineer who's relatively fresh out of college, and she has an idea for how she's going to... I like to, how you said she. Of course. Uh, well. Yeah. <laughs> if she has an idea for how she's going to improve something about the recommendation engine, mm -hmm. she just writes the code and puts it on the site. And it gets, and a 1% of customers will see it. And she might tell her boss about it, probably, but she doesn't even ask his permission. Or if she does, his default answer has to be yes, unless there's some extremely strong reason why this poses a risk to the site. And then Amazon has invested heavily in the infrastructure, because it's not easy to build a system where someone can just, where hundreds of different engineers can all just ship new features on the same day and they don't crash the site. That took a lot of effort for Amazon. But what it's done is it's created a culture of experimentation throughout the entire organization, a culture of autonomy throughout the entire organization where everyone mm. is an experimenter. Now, are you going to get to that in oil and gas? No, probably not. It's just not the same workforce. It's not the same environment. Mm. Yeah, and, and physical infrastructure is harder to experiment with than, than digital. But how close can you get to that? Can you empower small teams and business units to try things and beg forgiveness later rather than asking for permission up front?
But I have to ask you one more question on leadership then, because I think the way we learn about leadership, uh, I was a techie and then I went to business school and, you know, there is this uh, idealization about responsible leadership. You know, you build um, reliable budgets and you stick to what you said you're going to deliver and uh, people like predictability in a leader. Yeah. And that is really difficult to combine with a world where you let people take risks and you say, well, I'm not quite sure where we're going, but it's more or less the right direction and let's see what happens. I think there's a difference in how you run your main revenue producers, your P&L, you know, your cash cows, and how you run your experiments for the future. Um, and I do think when you're running your core existing business that is generating your contribution margin and, and your your free cash flow, that yeah, of course, you have to manage that very carefully. But I think that managing very carefully an innovation process is the exact opposite of what you want to do. So you want to have some separation uh, in how you treat those two things. I'll give you an example. I think it's a Silicon Valley example. Eric Schmidt, when he was chairman of Google, got asked in a conference, so what new exciting things are happening at Google that we haven't heard about yet? He said, I don't know. Ask the engineers. <laughs> and that was a lie, of course. I'm sure he knew about lots of things. And the engineers that were very excited would tell him things they were working on. But the meaning of his answer was, don't expect me to have all the ideas. My job is to empower the people throughout my organization to have the ideas and test them and take them to fruition. But his job is also to give them some direction. Of course. Sense of direction, right? Of course. Some basic rules of what, what's a good idea. Absolutely. You have to have a vision. You have to know what it is you're trying to achieve. You have to have uh, key metrics for what success looks like at a high level. You have to have you know, ethics and vision of what it is you're trying to achieve. Like today, you know, uh, Patrick Puyani talked about uh, wanting to maintain the revenue coming from oil, do it by having the cheapest oil production possible, and at the same time, grow new businesses in clean energy. Okay, mm -hmm. great. He's expressed what he's trying to do. He's expressed that the future is going to be clean energy is a bigger and bigger part of the company. So he's given that direction, and now people can follow that in the way that they're experimenting. How can they bring down the cost of oil production? Or Elder Satra, I think I said his name mm -hmm. wrong, of Equinor, was talking about bringing down the carbon emissions in the production process per barrel of oil, great, he's given that direction. Now, empower people to go off and be creative in finding ways to address that. If you ran the world's biggest energy company, what would your vision be? Oh my gosh. If you, um, would, would you do it, by the way? You know, one thing is talking about innovation and, and markets and energy versus having to, to turn a company. You know, it would be hard to pass up the opportunity, but I, I'd have to think long and hard about it. And I do love Seattle. Um, I think I'd think about a couple of things. I'd think about where the future is. And the future is electrified. The future is digital. The future is network effects. The value of Silicon Valley companies is not their hard assets. It's the network effects that they build. And I'd ask a lot about could we achieve that? while, of course, at the same time, having to manage your existing assets. But I, I will give you an example of companies that have been bolder than that. In Germany, Eon, you know, one of their largest utilities, cut itself in half and divested itself 
of all fossil fuel assets, put them in a sub company, and then sold off more than half of that sub company. So now they're a, they're a, a shareholder in it, but they took all of their fossil fuel generation, all of their coal, and said, we're making this a separate company and we're divesting most of it so that they could focus on a clean future. That's an incredibly bold move. Incredibly yep. bold. Com compared to another um, statement we heard today about how coal is never going to go away because, uh, uh, well, in Europe, the coal production facilities are 30, 40 years old, while in Asia, they're 11 years old. And so yeah. they'll be around for a long time. Nobody will stop using them. And I, I, was, I was kind of looking at you then and wondering what is he thinking now? Because we might sooner than soon come to a point where it's just getting so um, unproductive or, or inefficient to make coal or what, what do you think? So the cost in India of new solar plants is now cheaper than the OPEX and just the operating cost of about half of India's coal fleet. So what Fatih Birol said is just simply wrong, at least in, in India it is. Um, that the, Partially because they're running these at low capacity, they're not very good, and India doesn't, doesn't have very good coal resources. So solar is, and solar prices will drop by half or, or by factor of three again. So they will soon just be cheaper than continue to operate an existing coal power plant. Uh, in China last year, more than 150 coal plants that were planned were canceled. These were not existing ones that were shut down, but 40 of those plants had already broken ground. They'd already started construction and they were canceled. At least 10, 20 billion US dollars just written off because they couldn't see how they would remain economical. So even with a highly efficient, super critical coal plant with the latest scrubbers and so on, you just you have to pay for the coal, you have to pay for the operations. And solar and wind are going to start to put downward pressure on that and in some cases come in cheaper. And I'll add one more factor, which is not even climate change, but air quality. If you go to China, you know, I, I speak in China and I give talks to Chinese elites. And the first time I did, I gave a talk on climate change. I was very nervous. What would I see? And I got a hugely enthusiastic response. And the reason is, it's simple. The Chinese people live in the smog. So they have no doubt in their mind that pollution from energy can make the world worse. And they are not happy about it. They're quite angry. So for the Chinese leadership, fixing the air quality in their coastal cities is an existential issue. They have to do it if they want to remain in power. And now in Mumbai and Delhi, it's just as bad as Beijing. So even leaving aside climate change and even leaving aside the winning economics of solar and wind on their own, people are just not going to tolerate coal or diesel exhaust in these big cities anymore. Mm. They don't want that quality of life. Mm. So, Ramis, we're running out of time, and I, but I want to keep you a little bit longer. Um, I'd love to talk a little bit about convergence, basically. Mm. Um, I worked with a couple of um, vertically integrated energy companies. These, this is Norway, so these were companies with uh, hydro plants. And then uh, marketing and uh, distribution, uh, large grid, small grid. 
And what fascinated me is that the real business was moving into things like broadband and ISP mm -hmm. and combined with public services that have to do with health and media and, and, and you know, you say you're in energy business, but these energy companies are now suddenly responsible for cybersecurity and for uh, smart homes and for, Uh, you know, uh, a safe uh, public health net and things like that. What, 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 what do you think uh, will will happen with this convergence? Yeah, I mean, I think so. There's a incubator in Silicon Valley, uh, founded by a number of utility companies, including RWE in Germany and I think Dubai Power and Light and different utility companies from parts of the world that don't compete. And it's called free electrons because the theory, and it's really Florian Kolb from NOG that came up with the name and it's the driving force. But the theory is electricity is going to get cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. The production of electrons is going to get cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. And so where's the value of the utility? And the value is in the data and the customer relationships. And so then you ask, okay, I have this data about the customer and I have this relationship with the customer. How can I use that to improve their life? And you may get strange answers. Hmm. Like what? Well, like the ones you were just talking about. Smart home, of course, mm -hmm. is one that makes a lot of sense. Cybersecurity makes mm -hmm. sense. Internet mm -hmm. uh, makes sense potentially. I mean, having an internet-connected uh, thermostat in the home can help you manage the customer's energy use in a way that's valuable to the grid. So there's a, a reason to want to connect that. And maybe you have to sell them an Amazon Alexa or give them an Amazon Alexa or a Google smart home in order for them to let you put the smart thermostat in the home. Mm. So now you're in a different business than you were in before. And you have uh, somebody who knows you even better than before. <laughs> and that's very valuable. Um, my final question to um, the other people I, I talked with was, uh, you know, what would you like people to remember? And I would like to ask you the opposite question. What will you remember from the day to day? Mm. I will remember the enthusiastic response that I got. I, I spoke about how convergence of ride hailing, you know, buying rides as a service and autonomous vehicles and electric vehicles will be greater than some of its parts and make them go very, very, very fast. That the first time in most of the world someone rides an electric vehicle will not be because they've bought it. It'll be because they paid for a ride. And the first time you encounter an autonomous vehicle won't be because you bought it, but you paid for a ride. And when you pay for a ride five years from now, it will almost always be autonomous and electric. And that's a very, very scary message. And I'd say some of the other speakers after me were not totally thrilled with my message, but so many audience members came up to me and told me how thrilled they were with my talk. And so that's what I will remember, that in this industry that we think of as very conservative, there are people that are very excited about uh, a radical and clean future. Very cool. Ramiz, thank you for coming and uh, inspiring us. Thank you, Sylvia. It's been good to be here. And thank you for listening. Thank you. This was the technology podcast from the ONS 2018.